God, as we stand here together, as I stand here before these people with whom I love, that I have the privilege of preaching your word to, God, I am reminded of the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, that he said, I, apart from me, you can do nothing. God, I feel the weight of that as I, um, Lord, aim to take your word and to communicate it, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing in this moment. Lord, I acknowledge that we are utterly dependent upon you to open our eyes to your truth, to make our hearts receptive, God, for us to be transformed by your word today. And so God, do what only you can do, and that is to take your word, have it come alive in our hearts, and make us more like Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you felt like the light bulb went off in your mind as you're talking with them. That perhaps you had a conversation with a friend or a mentor or a family member, and maybe you asked them a question, and just the way that they responded brought such wisdom and clarity and direction that this light bulb went off in your mind, and you walked away feeling like you had a sense of purpose in life. Well, as we turn to verses 19 through 34, I want you to imagine yourself sitting across the table with John, the the Apostle John, the author of this gospel. And I want you to imagine that you're having a conversation with him, and you're talking about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And you're trying to have that light bulb experience to go off in your mind about what this actually looks like to follow Jesus with faithfulness. I wonder if in that conversation with the Apostle John, I wonder if he would say something to the effect, well, to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you need three things. You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know what your assignment is from God. And you need to know what the gospel message is all about. And I wonder as we're engaging with him in a conversation, if he looks at us and he picks up on the fact of, I don't know if you're really tracking with me. You know, you kind of stare at them with, you know, deer in the headlights. And I wonder if he would say, in fact, let me, let me illustrate what I mean by that by talking about John the Baptist, who actually lived out those three elements really, really well. Okay, and that's, that's kind of what I want to do here in the next couple of moments. I want to look at John the Baptist in light of what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus. I think we're going to learn three things from John. We're going to learn that you need to know who you are, you need to know what your assignment is from God, and you need to know what the gospel message is all about. Well, before we dive into uh, our first section here, um, I just want to point out, just as we transition out of the first uh, 18 verses, which are kind of the the prologue of John's gospel, we are now entering into the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And things start to take off for Jesus and his ministry. But I just want to point out, just for perspective's sake, that chapter 1, verses 19, all the way to chapter 2, verse 11, all of that occurs over a span of seven days. Okay, let me just point this out for us before uh, we dive in here. That The first day, we have John's testimony regarding Jesus. And then day two, we have John's encounter with Jesus. Then day three, John's referral of two disciples to Jesus, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. And then day four, we have Andrew's introduction of his brother Peter to Jesus. Day five, Philip and Nathaniel follow Jesus, and we skip day six, nothing happens. And then day seven, there's a wedding at Cana in chapter two, verses one through 11. Now that's the first week in John's gospel, and it culminates in Jesus' first 
miracle, this miraculous sign, which he does seven of them throughout this gospel, uh, he performs that at the wedding in Cana. Now, I, I point that out because the first 30 years of Jesus' life is very quiet. Like even in John's gospel, he doesn't really record anything about the first uh, 30 years. We know from the other synoptic gospels about the birth of Jesus. We know that he went to the temple often. We know that he grew in wisdom and in stature. We know that he astounded the teachers of the law, the, the law with the amount of wisdom and knowledge that he had concerning uh, the scriptures. But his public ministry didn't really take off until this, uh, this situation with John the Baptist in chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And I point that out to you this morning, that things start to take off in both power and popularity, because John is the first one to correctly identify who Jesus Christ actually is. And you're going to notice something as we travel through the Gospel of John, that every time someone correctly identifies Jesus as the Son of God, the urgency grows as far as Jesus wanting and getting to the cross. That not only his urgency grows, but uh, kind of his tension with the Jewish leader also uh, begins to thicken a little bit. Jesus is trying to get to the cross, and as he's trying to get to the cross, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, but every time there's this eyewitness that identifies Jesus as the cross, you're going to notice that the, the pace like picks up as far as Jesus wanting to get to the cross, and it starts here with John the Baptist. And so let's begin in verse 19 here, looking at this first section. Remember, what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus? You've got to know who you are. And so John the Baptist, what we learn about him is that he is the messenger. He is the messenger. Now, as we get to know John the Baptist in this section, we're really picking up where we left off in verses 6 through 8. John, the author here, is just putting more color to it. At this time, uh, John the Baptist has been preaching for almost a year at this point, and he's got this great following, great popularity even according to Matthew's gospel, the great Herod wanted to hear and, and see John the Baptist and almost believed. And so at this point, because of the large following and the great popularity, people were wondering, is this the Messiah? They were asking those kinds of questions. They were pontificating, is this really the promised uh, son of God, the, the king of kings that has finally come? In fact, just six weeks prior to verse 19, John the Baptist had a visitor. John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan, and Jesus Christ himself came to him and said, I need to be baptized. And so obviously John was, uh, was just amazed by that, ended up baptizing Jesus Christ. And in that moment, according to Matthew chapter 3, there was this voice from heaven that declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus just kind of disappears for 40 days into the wilderness, led by the Spirit, and is tempted by the devil. And you wonder, what took place in those 40 days? Well, John the Baptist continued to minister. He continued to preach, and his popularity continued to grow. And it continued to grow so much so that according to verse 19, we have religious leaders in Jerusalem who sent a delegation in order to investigate who John the Baptist actually is. This delegation was kind of a congressional fact-finding committee with religious and political motivations, and if they wanted to know the identity of John the Baptist. Now, as we get to verse 19, I want to point out the phrase 
uh, where John says the Jews. Uh, This is the first use of this expression. I point this out because that expression shows up over 70 times throughout the Gospel of John. And John uses that expression to talk about different groups of people, sometimes the whole nation of Israel, the Jewish people, but most of the time he uses it to describe Jesus' opponents. Most of the time they're referring to even the, the religious leaders within the Jewish community. And in fact, the way that he's using it here, he's referring to the leaders of the Sanhedrin. The leaders of the Sanhedrin had an amazing amount of influence, religious and spiritual authority within this community, and they even had authority over the priests and the Levites. Now, I say that because what's interesting about that is that John the Baptist was a Levite. And so catch this, the, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the reason why they send Levites to go ask a fellow Levite, John the Baptist, if he's the Messiah, is not just because of the large following But they are wondering and almost hoping, man, if this guy, a fellow Levite, is the Messiah, we're going to have so much more authority and power than what we have now. That if this is the Messiah and he's in our religious party, our influence is just going to grow in in, in incredible ways. And so we even see the beginning here. They're, They're wanting and almost trying to use the Messiah for their own agenda for their own, uh, their own ends. And look, this is something that's going to keep coming up. And look, you and I are going to be confronted with this temptation because we have a temptation to use Jesus for our own agenda at times. And sometimes we want the gifts of Jesus and not only, and, and not, not only the, the, the person of Jesus. We, we feel that tension, the, the same that the leaders of the Sanhedrin felt. And so John felt this expectation. He felt even the temptation of this. And the question is, in verse 19, who are you? It's an incredibly important question. You have to answer that question in in, in your lifetime. You have to wrestle with the fact of, who are you? How how did God create you to be? What are the the gifts that he's given you? Who, Who are you in Christ? We'll get to that more in a moment. But notice John's response here. He says, I am not the Christ. In other words, I'm not going to be who you want me uh, to be. You can almost feel the dreams and the hopes of the Levites just crumble before him. And so they're a little bit flustered here. They say, okay, if you're not the Christ, then are you Elijah? Now, for us, that sounds kind of random. Why would they pick just a random Old Testament prophet? But this is not a random Old Testament prophet. See, this, I think Elijah was one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament. And in fact, Uh, Elijah never died. This is crazy, but he was just ushered into heaven by chariots of fire. It's unbelievable. That's a great way to go out. And the Jewish people, though, thought that Elijah would later come back physically and literally, and when Elijah would come back, he would prepare the way for the Messiah. We know that because of Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4 that says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day, or some translations, that great and amazing day of the Lord comes. See, they thought and believed that Elijah physically would come, and when he would come, he would be a forerunner to Christ. But Elijah's response is, nope, I'm not, I'm not, uh, or John the Baptist's response is, nope, I'm not Elijah either. Now, if you know your Bibles, 
you know that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, that there's uh, some inconsistency here. Because in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus pretty explicitly calls John the Baptist Elijah. And so we have to wrestle with, well, how, how do we reconcile that? John the Baptist says no. Jesus says yes. Well, the way that we reconcile this is that John the Baptist, what he says here is accurate. He's not literally and physically Elijah. That what Jesus was referring to, and even what Malachi chapters 3 and 4 was referring to, was an Elijah-type figure who had kind of the, the spirit of Elijah, who would play the role of Elijah as the forerunner, as the Messiah would come. And so John the Baptist is not Jesus. He's not physically or literally Elijah. And so they try a third option. They say, well, are you the prophet's? Now, just not any kind of prophet, but the prophet. Now, why ask this? Well, they're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, where there's a promise of a prophet like Moses who would speak the words of God with such power and with such authority that it would cause the Jewish people to wonder, is is this the Messiah? Is the Messiah coming? Is the end uh, near? And to that option, John also very clearly says, no, I am not the prophet. So finally, the delegates here just throw their hands up in the air and they say, man, we got to tell our bosses something. Like, who are you then? What is your identity? And in verse 23, John the Baptist quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, but kind of puts his own spin on it. And he says this, he says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. This is John's identity here. He says, I am that voice that is crying out, that is making straight the path to Jesus. I'm not the substance. I am the messenger. I'm just a signpost to something that is more, uh, more significant John even borrows here an image from the Old Testament of of a workman making a road straight. He's like, I'm making that road straight and I'm getting out of the way. I'm preparing the way and I'm moving out of the way so that you can see clearly who Jesus is. John had a grasp on his own identity. And just to go back to the introduction, remember, we're having a conversation with the Apostle John here. We're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And I wonder in this conversation and in this point in time, I wonder if the Apostle John would stop us and say, look, did you catch it? Do you understand the importance of knowing your identity in Christ, knowing who you are? See, John the Baptist understood it. He understood that he's not Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not going to be who other people want him to be but he's fulfilling his identity in the Lord. And I wonder if the Apostle John would ask us, do you know who you are in the Lord? It's a valid question. Do you know who you are in Christ? Not who other people want you to be, not who the enemy is trying to convince you of, not who your doubts and your shame are trying to convince you of, but do you know who you are in Christ based on what God says about you? But perhaps you need to be reminded this morning that you are not what you do, that you are not what you produce, that your worth and your identity is not rooted in having your kids be the most well-behaved kids. It's not rooted in having the house always clean, 
that your identity is not rooted in your title at work or how much money that you make, that your identity is not rooted in what other people say about you or getting the approval of others or how many friends that you have or based on your church attendance. Look, your identity is rooted upon the person and the work of Jesus. It is based on what God says about you. And so look, if you're in Christ this morning, you need to know that because of Jesus, you are fully loved by God. That when God looks at you, he delights in you. Look, what that means is because of Christ, you don't have to continue to do good works in order to retain God's love for you. You don't have to spiritually perform for God to keep loving you. But because of Christ, you will never, ever lose it. Look, do you realize this morning that there is nothing that you can do to cause God to love you more or to cause God to love you less? Look, think about that for a moment. That's, that's part of your identity in Christ. There's, there's no more condemnation because of being in Christ. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. There's no more wondering and questioning, does, does God love me today? Is is God for me? Are these promises true for me today? No, Jesus settled all of that on the cross. He got up on the cross. He says, it is finished. Like I made a list of of some of the things that the Bible says about our identity because of Christ, that, that we are children of God. You are a friend of Jesus, that you are justified. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are set free from the bondage of sin. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Look, you are a new creation. The old has passed. You are a fellow heir with Christ, which means everything that Jesus inherits, you will inherit. You are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus to put on display the glory of God. That is who you are in Christ. Look, I, I just wonder, look, if you're wondering this morning, okay, we, we get it, Chris. We, I understand that. Move on to something more deep. Get to the deep end. Like, I understand the identity thing. Look, I just want to push back and say, don't skip over this. Don't move on from understanding that you are fully loved by God. Because if you miss that, you will miss your assignment from God. Look, this morning, I just want to share something that might trip us up in the Christian life something that I feel uh, like might become more popular as we try to live out the Christian life, it, it goes something like this, where I think we understand like salvation is not based on our works. I think we get that. But I think we struggle sometimes as we live out the Christian life where we feel like in order to keep and retain God's love, I have to continually perform for God. I think we say salvation, justification is all by Christ, but this sanctification process, it's all up to me. That that list that I read, that's all up to me. That's all all, all up to, to the spirit within me. And the danger of that is that will lead you into exhaustion, that will lead you to even uncertainty in your relationship with God. Because what if you have a bad day, which we all do? What if you get up in the morning and, man, you skip your time with the Lord, you're, you're sinning, you're going to wonder, does God still love me? Are, are these things still true? If you start moving from rooting your identity in Christ to rooting your identity in your spiritual performance, it's going to lead you into exhaustion and uncertainty. Look, I'm pressing here a little bit because 
in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you've got to answer that question in verse 19 for yourself. Who are you? And who are you in Christ? John the Baptist knew who he was in the Lord. Second thing I think the Apostle John would share with us as it relates to what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, not only who you are, but do you know what your assignment is from God? Do you know what your assignment is from God? Here we see John the Baptist's ministry in verses 24 through 28. Not just who he is, but notice the, the kinds of questions that, that these Jews are asking John. They move away from identity questions. In verse 25, they start asking him about his ministry. They start asking him, well, what, what are you doing? They, they say, why are you baptizing? And, and John says in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Look at that clarity about what he's doing, about his ministry, about his assignment from the Lord. He says, I baptize with water. In chapter 3, we'll get into the, the full meaning of John's baptism in, in a couple of weeks. We'll get there. I just want to highlight the fact that John's ministry, his assignment from God, was really an, an assignment that revolved around repentance. Now remember, he's that voice. He's making straight the path to the Messiah. And so he wants people to remove sin out of their lives so they can receive Jesus. And some of that had to do with his preaching and also some of that had to do with his baptism. Baptism here, they believed it was a purification ritual, that it was removing sin. It was demonstrating uh, repentance. But John just so very clearly states what his assignment is from, the God, from God. I baptize with water. Look, that's, that's John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist's assignment was to live in the wilderness, to have really long hair, to eat weird bugs and honey, to baptize people, and to declare you know, repentance and that the Messiah is coming. That's him, and that may not be your assignment from God. Maybe it is. But maybe it's not. But the question that you have to wrestle with is, what is your assignment from God? In other words, how has God wired you? What are the gifts God has given you? And what is the place that God has planted you in order to live out your identity in Christ? Do you know the answer to that question? In the 1950s, there was a, a man named Christian Herder who was the governor of Massachusetts. And there's a story about him where he was running for re-election. And he got to a, a dinner, a barbecue late. And he was extremely hungry. He missed breakfast and lunch. And he was going through the line. And he had his, his plate uh, uh, out open. And the woman there who was serving uh, chicken gave him one piece of chicken. And he looked at it and he said, ma'am, I'm, I'm really hungry. Could you, could you give me another piece of chicken here? And she responded, she says, nope, sorry, only one piece of chicken per person. And she said, oh, come on, I'm, I'm starved. Like, can you just give me another piece of chicken? She says, no, no, I'm sorry, sir, please, please move along. And Christian Herder was a modest man, but at this point in time, he decided to push his weight with, with the office, and he responded, and he said, ma'am, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state. And she responded, well, sir, do you know who I am? I am the, the one in charge of this chicken. Now, please move along, mister. I share that story with you because it, just a simple point, this woman knew exactly who she was and it gave her the amount of clarity to do what she did with confidence. 
And look, to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you've got to know who you are in Christ, and you've got to allow that to inform you what your assignment is in this life. The way that God has formed you, the gifts that he's given you, the strengths that he's given you, and the place or the environment that he has planted you in, and to do that with all the faithfulness in the world. Look, I... I just, I just want to point out the fact that your job is not your job by accident. That your kids are not your kids by accident. Your neighbors are not your neighbors by accident. Look, if you're in school, your school is not your school by accident. But out of God's sovereignty, he has planted you exactly where you are with specific purposes and he wants, to view, he wants you to view yourself as one who is on mission to be that voice who is making straight the path to Jesus. In other words, I want you just for a moment to take verse 26, and, and I want you to personalize it today. That John says his, his assignment from God was, I baptize with water, but I want you to fill that in with maybe I'm, I'm a CPA, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a nurse, or I'm a father, or I'm a mother, and this is your assignment from God. I'm an accountant, but among you stands one you do not know, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, and his name is Jesus. Like that is, that is where God has planted you, and that is your assignment from the Lord, is to make known the beauty of Jesus wherever you are. That your assignment, your ministry is not restricted inside the four walls of the church, but it's where God is taking you Monday through Saturday and to live that out in all, all faithfulness. Look, I just, I wonder what would happen if we viewed our jobs, if we viewed our families, our neighborhoods, our schools with as much purpose and intentionality and passion as John the Baptist viewed his assignment from God. I wonder if we wake up tomorrow morning we understood who we are in Christ. We understand our gifts and our strengths, and we walk into the place that God has planted us, whether that's in a cubicle somewhere, that's some office in, in the corporate world, or that's some hospital or school, or, or the living room as you play and interact with your kids, and you declare, right here in this place is my assignment from God, is my ministry from him, and I'm going to enjoy Jesus where I am, and I'm going to be a signpost pointing to him to those around me. You view your everyday living with that type of purpose and gospel intentionality, like it will change how you live out your identity in Christ. That nothing is ordinary, nothing is insignificant, like maybe you're wondering, well, what does that look like? How do I view the place God has planted me as my assignment from God? Well, let me just give you four questions to, to, to work through to determine if you're viewing your place as God's assignment. Number one, are you living where you are, working wherever you are, with integrity, with a strong work ethic, and with good character? Like are, you, are you viewing who you are at work as an extension of who you are in Christ with all honesty and with good character? If yes, then that's a good sign that you're living out God's assignment for you. Number two, are you consistently praying for the people around you? Are you praying for your coworkers? Are you praying for your family members? Are you praying for your neighbors and your classmates? It's a good sign that you're viewing your place as God's assignment for you. Number three, are you taking opportunities to share Jesus with others? 
whether that's with your kids or your neighbors or your coworkers, understanding that you are a missionary wherever God has placed you. Number four, are you worshiping as you do what you do? That in the workplace, in the cubicle, are you aware of God's presence? Are you, are you praying as you work? Are you thinking about God? Are you rehearsing the gospel to yourself? Are you recalling scripture memory and, and allowing that place to be a place of worship? Look, I think John the Baptist would say yes to all four of those questions. That because he understood who he was, he understood his assignment from God and lived it out with all faithfulness. Like you are not a nurse or a teacher or a business person who just so happens to be a Christian. Like you are first and foremost a Christian who just so happens to be a nurse or teacher or business person. That is who you are. You need to understand that in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Number three, the last thing here is we're talking to the Apostle John, trying to have the light bulb go off about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. He's going to want us to know, hey, do you know the message of Jesus? Do you know the gospel and what it is all about and how it's connected to your identity and how it's connected to your assignment from the Lord. Well, as we kind of move into verse 29 here, we're told that the very next day, John was baptizing people. He's with other people. And he declares, as he sees Jesus coming towards him, he declares out loud to everybody around him, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a beautiful sentence. This sentence sums up the gospel. This sums up the the message, the the message of John and what the message for us should be all about. And in verses 30 through 34, John testifies. He witnesses about who Jesus Christ actually is. And he's really the first individual to do it. That in verse 34, he testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Look, we're on this side of the cross, right? And I, I just wonder... Like, what did the Jews wonder uh, and think about in this moment? Like, as, as John just kind of blurts out, he sees Jesus coming. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like, you wonder if, like, the average Jew was starting to connect the dots about who Jesus is. And I do know that if they, if they were an average Jew, they would have an understanding of the Old Testament. They're thinking, okay, Lamb of God, th- this Lamb thing who is a sacrifice, who's going to take away the sin of the world. That, uh, that, 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 that reminds me of something. That I, I recall a couple instances in the Old Testament of which a lamb was a sacrifice for sin. And maybe they would recall Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham was a father of the faith. They would definitely recall this where Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as Isaac was on the altar, Isaac looks around. He's like, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where's the lamb, Dad? And Abraham responds with, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. I wonder if they were connecting the dots. That was actually to to push forward and point forward to Jesus being the lamb of God. I wonder if these Jews would recall the Passover feast and why they celebrated the Passover every year. How in the Old Testament when Moses was trying to free God's people and all these plagues were happening, and that the angel of God was going to kill the firstborn unless you had the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. And if you didn't, you weren't saved. I wonder if they're kind of recalling that to mind. Or I wonder if the, the words of Isaiah in chapter 53 was ringing in their minds. 
where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. That he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Look, whatever they thought, one thing was true, that as John's message was being proclaimed here in verse 29, that he was making it so, so clear that Jesus would be this sacrifice, that Jesus would be the answer to humanity's biggest problem, that our biggest problem, your biggest problem, my biggest problem is our sin issue and the consequences that come with that, that we have this, this eternal gap between us and a holy God, and the only person that could fill that gap was the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And John is declaring that God provided a way to bridge that gap by sending Jesus to be the sacrificial lamb on the cross to pay for our sins. Look, the encounter between Abraham and Isaac had prophesied about Jesus' sacrifice. The Passover applied the principle of his sacrifice. Isaiah 53 personified his sacrifice. John chapter 1 here identified the sacrifice but then in Revelation chapter 5, also written by the Apostle John, I think it magnifies the sacrifice. Here's Revelation chapter 5 where it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I, John, looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Look, the reason why we who are in Christ will be praising Jesus, the Lamb of God, forever and ever is because Jesus was the only way for us to be made right with God. That Jesus took our place, removed our penalty of our sin that we committed, and he died in the place of sinners. Not only that, but when we worship him, as we stand in his presence with thousands and perhaps millions of others, that we're going to see the Lamb of God who wasn't just slain, but is resurrected. He is the victorious Lamb of God. And for everyone who puts their faith upon that lamb, upon Jesus, will be saved. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith upon Jesus? Have you turned from your sins? Have you given your life to the lamb of God who took your place on the cross? As I close this morning, I just want to do just one last thing. I want you to just look at verse 29. And again, I want you to, to personalize this verse. Verse 29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But instead of the world, just put your name there if your faith is upon Jesus. That behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of 
Crispials, or whatever your name is this morning. And just be reminded, if you walk in here and you've got this burden on your back because of the sin that you've committed, if you've got the voice of shame that's just, just, just all over you this week, and if you're in Christ, if you have a faith upon Jesus, just rest in the reality that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has removed the sin in your life. He's paid for it. Because just as I close, just close your eyes for a moment and just visualize verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of just put your name there. Let's just linger there for a moment. I want you to remember, I want you to, to recall the moment in which God opened your blind eyes. Remember where you were. Remember how old you were. If you were young, if you were old, remember the circumstances surrounding that moment when God opened your eyes and made verse 29 a reality for you personally. Just linger there for a moment. Just enjoy that moment. Bask in the glory of Jesus. Give him praise that he has saved you, that he has broken the chains of sin, that he has made you a daughter or a son of the king of kings, all because the lamb of God was slain. God, we give you praise, Lord, for saving us. God, we were lost in our own sin. God, we were wandering throughout this world, and you came and you, you plucked us out, you called us out of darkness. Lord, you showed us that this Lamb of God has a name. His name is Jesus, that he died in our place on the cross. God, I pray for those of us who understand that, who have made a personal commitment to Jesus to trust in him. God, would you help us to be a faithful follower of you? God, thank you for John the Baptist who illustrates what it means to, to, to walk with you in faithfulness. And I pray that you'd help us to understand who we are in Christ help us to understand what our assignment is, what our mission is from you. And Lord, that the gospel message will be something that we preach to ourselves over and over again. So God, thank you for the blood of the lamb that cleanses us and that has justified us before you. Give me praise for in Jesus' name.